Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going to finish up the first half of Fire on the Horizon. And again, we're talking about how everything in Joseph Smith's teachings points to a I-thou relationship or a, a oneness with God and with each other. Last time we talked about Zion. And this time we're talking about the hard things. And the title of this section is Human Sacrifice, Plural Marriage, and the I-thou Relation. So first off, you're like, whoa, whoa, Joseph Smith didn't teach about human sacrifice. No, but that's an allusion to Abraham and how plural marriage might relate to the human sacrifice asked of Abraham. So you start out the chapter kind of just saying things about Abraham, like if you read the Old Testament, we read about Abraham, the patriarch of all of Judaism and by proxy Christianity, according to tradition. And when his wife couldn't bear children, they brought in Hagar to be his wife, basically, or his bearer of children. And he was a polygamist. And being a polygamist was pretty normal in his day. And you say, well, interesting, but if he was really a prophet of God, then why didn't he pick up on the fact that despite his culture, polygamy is still tantamount to basically adultery? You know, maybe he was just spiritually obtuse, you say. But on the other hand, and maybe more scary for us as believers, maybe he wasn't. Maybe there was something to what he was doing. I'm going to just start out with this kind of a long quote, but it'll set us up for what we're talking about. So we're talking about plural marriage today, or polygamy as it's colloquially known. And you say, for Joseph Smith, the celestial order of marriage, which could include the plurality of wives, but not necessarily maybe, was a type of Abrahamic test. It served the same purpose in God's plan. The divine purpose rests in the very fact that God's command to Abraham to sacrifice his only begotten son sets the mind in revolt. How could a loving God ask such a thing, let alone command it? Everything in my head screams, no, that's impossible, at the very thought of such a command. Can the being who commands such a thing really be regarded as just, as good, as holy, as loving, as God? If the answer is even possibly yes, then everything we think we know and every moral judgment we make to give some order to our notions of justice, love, and the holy must be abandoned. How can we abandon these beliefs without losing ourselves wholly and giving up our own lives entirely? No, it was not Isaac that was sacrificed on the altar on Moriah, for he was saved by the angel's intervention. It was every hope of making any sense of God in a way true to our own moral judgments. So that's a a pretty stark thing to start out with there, saying if God is the kind of God that commands things like polygamy or Abraham to sacrifice his son, then that's, you know, that's okay for God to do, then like, well, then God doesn't seem to be someone that shares the moral values of general humans. And if he doesn't, then it's outside of our scope of understanding. Like, then we're kind of lost here. Right. I mean, what we're looking at is both a, an understanding that is at odds with our culture. Now, you've got to understand that polygamy is by far and away the common practice in the history of humanity. 
and probably wouldn't have caused any concern for a person in a different culture, but we're not in that culture. And we justly are concerned about the well-being of women and what works best for women. And, you know, it ain't polygamy. I think almost everybody would concur. And so what is God doing? And so that's the burden of this chapter as a practical matter. What is the just and holy God doing? Now, I want to make something clear. It's a question that you asked. I reject the divine command theory of ethics where something is right simply because God says it. Now, Joseph Smith made comments to that extent, that whatever God commands is correct. But it isn't right because God commands it. Rather, we would want to say God commands it because it's right and correct. But in this instance, what I'm saying is that God's purposes are far different than we anticipate, and that what he's seeking is far different than what most humans are seeking. (laughs) Most humans want to maximize their personal happiness over a lifetime. So If we were doing that, we would never sacrifice. We wouldn't very likely have children. We wouldn't get a job that ties us down. We wouldn't support a family. We would look only to ourselves. And in essence, we would adopt a strict form of hedonism where only our own best interests and goals are taken into consideration. But it doesn't take long to figure out that is just the definition of a self-absorbed life that is the opposite of the love that God has called us to. So... If that's not going to work, then how do we fulfill the purposes? And not everybody will have this purpose. And so God has a different purpose for us. And there's something that he has to accomplish in order, and this is only for a very small percentage of people in the history of the world, in order for him to fully reveal himself to them such that they can enter into the relationship of total unity with them. Yeah, and then you go on to say, so like when we're assessing whether this is the type of thing that God can command or what if God would command such a thing like this and say maybe it's easier to believe that Joseph Smith was just lecherous and a dirty man than it is to believe that God would ask such a thing. Or maybe it's easier to believe that Joseph Smith suffered from megalomania and wanted an ultimate test of the loyalty of his followers than to accept the unthinkable. Maybe that God was asking the saints to do something unfathomable. Surely something, especially to us, immoral based on everything that they had been taught. Every feeling of order and morality in the universe was set in disarray if God could ask such a thing. And in listening to different podcasts, I I think there are even now several kind of more liberal Mormons who will say things like, you know what, I believe Joseph Smith was a prophet, but I also believe he was an imperfect man. And a lot of them will say, you know, I think polygamy was just him taking some things too far and it came from him. And that was actually towards the end of his life, something that a lot of the members back then were saying too. They're like, oh, we like the old Joseph Smith, not this new Joseph Smith that talks about the plurality of gods and plural marriage and things like that. And so ultimately these views contributed to events that led to his death. So to say that, you know, you could say that, but like, you know, generally if it makes your life a whole lot harder, and he in his own journal said that he didn't really, you know, it it wasn't something that he wanted to do. I believe he said basically that like he had kind of felt the nudgings of this revelation on plural marriage for a while, and then he kind of just like ignored it for a while, and then according to him, an angel with a drawn sword, or you know maybe that's a metaphor, I don't know, but the having God basically be like, no, you have to do this, I'm not kidding around here, and so you know he seemed to be not wanting to jump in with his toe, so I don't know, at least for me that gets rid of some of the megalomania part, but. Like you're saying, it's easier just to believe that than the alternative. Well, 
the bottom line is, if you listen to Joseph Smith's own narrative, it was hard for him. It was certainly hard for Emma, and it didn't make life easy for him. And it was certainly not something that his immediate followers wanted. Now, there's a distinction between Joseph Smith and those that accepted polygamy from the Revelation, and that is, at least for Brigham Young, Wilfred Woodruff, and others, you can explain that they were entering into polygamy not out of lust, but out of duty. They were doing it because they felt it was their duty to God and to you know, the revelations and restoration to do what they were asked to do, but clearly, obviously, didn't want to do. For Joseph Smith, the narrative has been, well, he jumped into it because he's just an old ledge. A powerful man always do this. They begin to cavort with women and create ways to do so. And they're just a bunch of, of really rotten people. That's kind of the liberal narrative for liberal Mormons. You know, Joseph Smith was just uh, another guy who was horny, to put it crudely. And so what we're looking at is, is that narrative accurate? And that narrative is simply way too facile for the evidence. Joseph Smith clearly married older women with whom he had no sexual relationship. And I'm going to use the term marriage here for celestial marriage, but the more proper term would be sealing, because that's the term that they used. And at first, the relationship between marriage and, and the relationship between sealing is not as clearly understood. Remember, this was all brand new to him. A lot of what was happening are what we would call family sealings. Joseph Smith clearly did it, and he explained that he did it. And when he, when he um, asked his followers and taught them about the practice, what he taught them was that he loved them so much he wanted to be with them throughout all eternity, and that's the purpose of it. This constituted essentially a family ceiling where they could be with him. So if, if we accept Joseph Smith's own narrative, he did it out of love. He did it out of a sense of, of loving people so much he couldn't bear the thought that he wouldn't be with them after this life. And the evidence simply won't and can't be explained by Joseph Smith simply being alleged because of the number of relationships he obviously and clearly had that did not involve sexual relationships. And I would include in this very clearly the, the young girls that he was sealed to, explaining that in, in doing so, he was being sealed to their families, and that was the purpose of it. And I don't have the time to go through DNC 6. But let me say that it is given in the form of a Levitical law. It is like a case law. So you give different cases and you say, if this is the case, then this is the law. And there are six different cases in DNC 132. And each case has different rules that apply to it. And a sexual relationship is only mentioned in one of those cases. The purpose isn't sex. In that case, it's to raise up a, a righteous generation and to replenish and multiply the earth to be obedient to that law. But that's only one of the cases. And so there are a number of other, how do I say this, instances where Joseph Smith is not entering into polygamy for the purpose of replenishing the earth. The purposes are different and often is simply to be sealed to the people that he loved in his life. I'm convinced that it took quite a while for Joseph Smith to both clarify this in his own mind and to teach his followers what was going on. I'm convinced that Emma did not understand it, and rather clearly so. And how could she? I'm not being critical of her, but, you know, she didn't really get that being sealed to young girls didn't necessarily mean he was going to go jump in the sack with them. So there are various purposes of polygamy, but there's one in particular that I want to talk about that is addressed throughout DNC 132 and the gravamen of DNC 132 for Joseph Smith. In DNC 132, Joseph Smith receives his calling in election having been made sure. 
because he passes the test. It's very clear that he does. Emma does not. And the purpose of polygamy for him and of the test that he was undergoing was so that he could be sealed to eternal life with surety. And the purpose, and this is quoted in DNC 132, is to be able to know God and have the kind of relationship where that kind of eternal sealing is a reality. And so when we focus on the purposes of polygamy, what was really happening, the Lech story is not going to hold water because it simply won't explain the evidence. I have no doubt that there are many people who can't even imagine that Joseph Smith would get quote-unquote married to a young girl and not immediately jump into the couch with them. But that probably tells us more about who's writing than about Joseph Smith because that's not what the evidence will bear. The purpose that I'm focusing on in this particular meditation is coming to know God and to know God in a way that he can be known only if he reveals himself and we remove all of the human impediments that get in the way of allowing that to occur. I don't want to go off into the weeds too far, but I, we mentioned this before that ceilings and such were a little bit different in this time period at the beginning of the church. There was something known as the law of adoption and people would get sealed to church leaders. For example, Brigham Young was sealed by the law of adoption to Joseph Smith, and J Brigham Young himself was sealed to like 38 young men by the law of adoption. So though there were like, and I don't know if you're trying to say that Joseph Smith didn't have sexual relations with any of his plural wives, I think he did, but what you're saying is that wasn't the primary purpose for most of them. It was to do the sealing, because like we said, Everything in Joseph Smith's teachings is trying to point to a oneness of the community as well as oneness with God. And so we have this idea kind of today, but like a, this great chain of all of humanity being sealed to one another as one big family. He didn't stop it at, you know, oh, we're the Smith family, we'll get sealed to each other. But it was more of an idea of like, we're the Smith family and then you're my family too. We're all children of God and so we're all one family as opposed to limiting it to surnames or more immediate ancestors, I suppose. Yeah, and what I do want to emphasize is that I'm not saying Joseph Smith never had sexual relations. I think, at least in some instances, he rather clearly did, but it was only one of the six cases where the wife had consented to the relationship, knew about it, and actually participated in this sealing ceremony. And so I don't want people to say, you know, honestly, you're daft, but they'd say that if they want. I really don't care. But the bottom line is, is that what we're looking at is a practice that will not be fully explained by the fact that Joseph Smith has a lech. There will be people who will continue to believe that no matter what because it fits whatever narrative they want. But look, I'm fine. I, I've never had a problem with the notion that if Joseph Smith married another woman that he could have intimate relations. One of the purposes, one of the six purposes, and one of the six different types of relationships outlined in DNC 132 is one for the purpose of multiplying and replenishing the earth. So I would assume that includes sex, but that's not what I want to focus on. We've talked about the intimacy of the sexual relation and how it is also a teacher for this relationship, this interpersonal I-thou relationship of complete unity, but that's not the focus of this meditation. Let's shift back now to that. So, I mean, polygamy is interesting and there's a lot of history and we're not trying to go into all of that here or explain it away or anything like that. So we're just trying to talk about it as you said, as almost a, not a moral dilemma, but a another level of this I-thou relationship or a higher level of relating to God. Yeah, I guess I'll read this. We kind of talked about it, but I'll just hurry and read it. So you say the very command, because Joseph Smith went around and you make it a point, you say he didn't really ask people to do it. He commanded them. And he said the very command forced the saints to shuck off every belief and assumption that they had about 
to encounter God without prior judgment, without expectations and without imposing their beliefs and demands on God. They were forced to let go of every presupposition, forget everything that they thought they knew, and suspend every notion about how and what God must be to be God, and simply to encounter God as he is and as he reveals himself. And that's kind of more along what you're trying to get at here. So, and I think we've talked about this even at the very, very beginning of this podcast when I interviewed you. I guess it's at the beginning of the first volume too. We're like, you know, we're going to analytically analyze what we can about what's revealed and what's in the scriptures about God and just using logic and stuff like that. But one of the dangers is always trying to bring your own preconceptions of what God has to be and then saying, well, that doesn't fit my preconception, therefore that's wrong. And so God must be this or something like that. And Joseph Smith was saying, no, we can't do that. And in fact, it wasn't just in this plural marriage type thing, especially in his later revelations, he was breaking the presuppositions that had been held by Christianity for at least, you know, hundreds of years, probably a thousand years at that point, and saying, no, I mean, God is revealing himself to me, and this is what he's saying. It doesn't matter if it matches what we thought up about God. It matters how God's revealing himself. You can say something about that if you want, but then I want to keep this very brief because we already talked about it, but you, you talk about experiencing reality and Kant's theory of like epistemology. And we had several podcasts about epistemology. So just kind of how does that relate here and fit in Kant's paradigm of how you come to know something and then why, I guess I didn't really introduce it, but why are you even talking about that in this chapter? What we're talking about is something that humans cannot easily escape. We can escape the limitations that we have only by an act of grace only by a thou that reveals itself to it and that we counter in an interpersonal revelation of the other to us. And God is not the only one who can reveal him or herself to us in this very interpersonal way that creates an either relationship. But God is the primary person who can reveal himself in this way precisely because he's the most intimate person with us always. I say that because no other person knows our thoughts. No other person knows more about us than we know about ourselves. And no other person has the kind of love for us that God, and when I'm using God, I'm using the Trinity as a unity, and the kind of love that they have for one another. That's what's being sought here. But that kind of love is one of full transparency, one where there are no barriers. There are no masks. There are no hidden agendas. There are no secrets. It is absolute, complete transparency where even one's thoughts are open to the other. Scary thought, that. But... When we encounter another person, we never encounter them in the way that God is seeking to have us know him as a thou. Given Kant's epistemology, but also just common sense, we have all these filters that we run our experience through. You're a little kid, and you're in the, in the store, and you see a man with a beard. And your mom's taught you that you know there are people who are, who are child molesters, and all the pictures of child molesters you can remember are old guys with beards, and boy, that's what that guy looks like to you. So you judge, and you're afraid of him already. Never met him. I've seen this happen to little kids, <laughs> and I'm just giving you kind of, of an inane example, but we've all had this kind of experience of prejudgment of what a person must be and be like before we've ever even had a chance to talk to them. We bring with us filters of prior experience, we bring with us filters of judgment, we bring with us all of these prior expectations that we impose on people, and God is the primary one that we impose obligations and barriers and limits to if we impose on him our own moral values and judgments that he has to live up to before we're willing to accept him. Now, I'm not saying morality is bad or evil. 
But you have to remember that my theory of morality is an agape theory of morality. And so what I'm teaching here is entirely consistent with the agape theory of morality. It is not a divine command theory, okay? What God is seeking through this kind of an action is to break down every presupposition that we are in a position to judge God and what he must be before he reveals himself to us so that we can come to know God. Remember this key statement in John 14:2: Eternal life is to know God and his son Jesus Christ whom he has sent. But the word here used in Greek is ginosko, and it means this intense interpersonal way of knowing a person. But even more importantly, to know a person is not to know about a person, is to have a sympathetic, interactive, empathetic contact with another person where we have a shared life. It's the kind of contact where I'm not imposing on you my expectations for your life. I'm accepting your revelation of the purpose of your life to me. I'm not imposing on you my purposes that I have for you. I'm accepting your purposes of your life as my purposes for your life. I'm treating you as an end or the most valuable reality that I know in and of itself instead of merely a means to some other less valuable end. In other words, no thou is an mere object. A thou is, in the deepest sense, a person who is the fullest, most complete, passionate partner that a person can have. I think that we get closer to this with a husband or wife than with any other person if we're in that kind of loving relationship. And of course, the tragedy of failed relationships of that nature is the potentiality that was never realized. But with God, I mean, I I listen to academics all the time tell me what God has to be in terms of morality and so forth, or that's not really God. But of course, all they're doing is imposing their own agenda, their own mirror, their own judgments and so forth. And uh, I've noticed for a lot of progressive that God, that, you know, God ends up looking a lot like a Democrat. And for Republicans, God ends up looking like kind of the ultimate Republican. And so those are the demands they have, and God has to meet those demands, or he's not really God, when their real God is actually whatever their political leanings are in those cases. A lot of people have gods of whatever makes them prosperous. And we have all kinds of gods, except for the real true God who could reveal himself to us if only we would allow him to do so. And so what happens is with this kind of a command to us, we can't impose our judgments, our moral obligations that we think we have upon God and that he has to meet in order for us to really allow him to reveal himself to us in the fullness of his love. And so there's no way to make sense of God in terms of this kind of a command, in terms of one's own morality and what one knows from one's culture and so forth. There's just no way to make sense of it. But that's the way all persons are. It doesn't matter how long you're with another person, you'll never fully understand them. Persons are not to be understood because they can't be understood. The unfathomable mystery of a person, especially a person who is free and growing and alive, is never-ending. And unless we allow them to reveal themselves to us as they are in each new moment in their growth, changing, dynamic realities that reveal themselves to us in this sympathetic, loving contact, then we impose on them the past of our expectations for them. When we refuse to forgive a person, we impose on them the past person that they were and disallow them to move forward. That's also the denial of the atonement and what it stands for. So ultimately, what I'm suggesting is that plural marriage breaks down all of these barriers, destroys every expectation, destroys every sense that we are God and can judge God and determine what standards he has to meet in order for God to be our God. 
if we have those standards. And I'm making a Kierkegaardian argument here. Now, Kierkegaard has a lot of different takes on this. He walks up Mount Moriah with Abraham at least eight different times and with eight different outcomes. So what Kierkegaard is saying, you have these three different levels. You've got an aesthetic level where people live, you know, for their basic personal enjoyment. They don't want kids getting in their way. You know, they, they want to be entertained all the time. You've got an ethical level where people live by the law and by morality as the ultimate judge. And then you've got the night of infinite resignation. This is a person who is beyond this type of moral judgment. I'm not saying beyond any kind of ethical sense, but beyond this kind of moral judgment where a person can be judged by another. And so given the ethical stance, this person can make no sense whatsoever because they're not governed by these rules and laws that are imposed from the outside. Their life is lived in love from the inside in a total passionate interaction with another thou. And so they can't be made sense of in the same way that human beings can't be made sense of. No person can be analyzed. No person can be reduced. No person can be dissected without killing him or her. No person is subject to this kind of demand that we would lay on God saying, I'm sorry, I won't love you unless X, Y, Z. And the minute you say that, we begin to realize, hold it, if I love them only if they meet my own judgments, then I don't have unconditional love. I don't have a love of gracious giving of myself because I'm loving. Instead, what I have is a sense of I'm only willing to give you my love when you earn it and you're worthy of my love. And so this really is something that's very important in the sense of bringing us to exaltation and eternal lives. Right. One thing I wanted to go over, it's along the same lines of what you're saying, but you brought this up earlier and you've already kind of deflected this, but I just want to talk about it because it feeds into this next part. So in Greek philosophy, there's the, a classic dilemma called Euthyphro's Dilemma, which is when God commands something, does God command something because it's good or something become good when God commands it? And you said that that's, you know, it's not what's going on here, that God isn't just making up Morality, he would command it because it is good. But you make a very important caveat that I think a lot of LDS people might need to, or at least in my perspective, that it's a good shift to go to. So a lot of people think of things like, you know, justice and good, as they call them, you know, these are absolute truths and it's some sort of thing that's out there in the universe. And so you take morality and you say, well, morality as such is not out there in the world of ideal absolutes to be discovered by thinking. So it's not like a thing that you can come to know this thing that's really out there. Rather, moral demands or morality arises only in interpersonal relationships. So morality is real, but it's not an abstract thing that is independent of beings. And so explain kind of more what you mean that morality, for example, can arise in an interpersonal relationship versus it being some ultimate truth that is unbendable by anything. So when we're with people, I have defined the good and what is bad, um, good and evil, right and wrong, in terms of what heals and fosters and creates relationships or makes them you know, more profound. And whatever harms a relationship, whatever ruptures a relationship is, is bad or evil. And so when we're looking at this in terms of that kind of an ethic, it becomes clear that if this allows us to encounter people, others, as a thou in a more intimate and fulfilling way in a true loving relationship, 
then it follows that it is good in terms of the agape ethic. But it's not good because God has commanded it to be good, and he commands it not because it is, in fact, the love that has been commanded, but it is a way of making us free to be able to achieve that kind of love. So what is being commanded in terms of the agape relationship here, God has commanded us to love one another, and this is merely an appendage to that. My sense is that God commands people for this kind of a relationship when they're spiritually prepared to take the next step into the kind of knowing relationship of perfect love that God is seeking. Otherwise, it could be a very destructive relationship, and we have to trust God as to whether we're ready or not for that kind of relationship, it seems to me. Having said that, I want to emphasize that I have revalued ethics in a sense because what is valuable are interpersonal relationships. And so the obligation arises only in those relationships. In a sense, the relationships just are the determiner of what is good and what is evil because what fosters relationships is good. Now, it's a particular type of relationship where we treat each other with the kind of personal regard that the I-Thou relationship teaches us. Everybody is capable of this kind of loving relationship at a certain level. And I want to say, you know, even babies, and maybe in particular babies, are capable of this kind of relationship. So I'm not leaving little kids out of the notion that they're capable of love. What I want to say is they may be the perfect exemplars of love because they don't have these kinds of presuppositions. I mean, we have to learn these kind of things growing up in a culture where after a while we can't unlearn them very easily. And in fact, maybe we can never escape our own skin, and the best that we can do is wait for a revelation that completely transcends us in order to arrive at the kind of relationship that we're talking about. So the obligations that we have are not obligations at all. In the agape theory of ethics, there aren't any moral duties or obligations because what we do is not done out of duty or obligation. It's done out of love. And doing something out of love is a very different way of living life than doing it out of moral obligation. The agape theory of ethics is asking us to transcend this ethical view of life where we can impose duties and obligations and require others to live the kind of life we demand of them, where we accept in love. Now, that means we will seek, given where we are, their best interests. Their purposes will be our purposes but only to the extent that we can see that it leads to flourishing and greater growth and freedom. If a person is hell-bent on destroying themselves, then I think we're perfectly entitled, you know, because we we know that if we love a person, we're going to do what we can to keep them from self-destructing. So when I say their purposes become our purposes, I don't mean that as just a general rule. I mean that when a person is a self-realizing person, a flourishing person, a growing person, then we cheer them on and their purposes for their lives become our purposes for their lives. And that's regardless of what their purpose of their life is, because we cannot impose on them that purpose. In this agape ethic, it makes no sense whatsoever to say that God has obligations that he has to meet in order to be worthy of our love and acceptance. All right, and that leads us into this last quote here before we sum up this whole section. So you say, the bottom line is that the ultimate trust means accepting that God can be trusted to be supremely loving, even when everything in our head screams, no, that's impossible. For in the movement from judgment to trust, we create unconditional love. 
and it is only love that can finally see God as he truly is. So this you know, checking off all those conditions that we put on, say, and say, you know, that's the essence of the I-thou relationship, except the thou for who they actually are, not for what we think they should be. And that, that especially rings true with God, because humans seem to have, a, I mean, I, I do it, every, I'm sure you do it, but everyone seems to have a hard time with not doing what you said and projecting their ideal of the perfect being onto God, saying like, well, from my point of view, if someone was really good, then they'd have all these qualities. And like you said, that can take on various forms to every person that's different. But when you truly have a relationship with God as he is, as opposed to as you want him to be, then that's where the true relationship can be formed. So what this requires is going to God with a truly open heart and being willing to accept whatever it is. Now, this is the ultimate trust. And remember, trust is the ultimate glue of every relationship. And so God is asking us to trust him, to trust that he has our best interests at heart. And that his glory, in fact, is our immortality and eternal life. So this is an exercise in trust. You know, we do trust falls. We do trust exercises. This is kind of the ultimate stretch in trust, if you will. (laughs) Will you trust God? When it comes down to what matters most and everything in your mind says, how can I trust this? It's Indiana Jones stepping off into the vast chasm thinking he's going to fall to his death, but just trusting that somehow, somehow, that's not going to happen. And since I love Indiana Jones, that's a good metaphor to end with anyway. (laughs) All right, and then I just wanted to include this, and it can be brief, but I wanted to cover the conclusion of this half of the book. So I'll just read this paragraph, and you can say whatever you want, just to sum up the entire things that we've been talking about with all of this. So you say, In summation, Joseph Smith sought to teach all persons to enter into the ethics of discourse. He sought to make all that matters ultimately to also be all that matters presently. To engage in the ethics of discourse properly is to address our existence from within the I-Thou relationship, to move and have our being in God. To enter into ethics in the divine discourse is to enter the temple, to belong to Zion, to be reconciled as at-one-ment or atonement with God, to be as God is. And again, you say everything that Joseph Smith was revealing pointed to this thing. Anything else to say about that? No, I think that this explains what we're looking at. And, you know, I have no doubt people will still continue to look at polygamy and be appalled by it, which is totally appropriate. They ought to be appalled by it. And notice that I use the word ought here in an ethical sense. And I'm also arguing that the agape ethic transcends that particular ethical sense to bring us to a true either relationship. And we can see that it's kind of an ultimate test. I can tell you right now, if the prophet came to me and said, you've got to give up your wife to another man or you've got to take another woman, I'd just look at him and say, I think you're as crazy as a lung. But then I'd go pray about it and see what happens. <laughs> so there you are. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.